1: To get started,
0: visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
1: Welcome to Face to Face. This is a show about change and about what's next. It's a show that wants to ask questions, peel back the layers of our average everyday experience, and go beyond scratching the surface. We interview amazing people with incredible ideas and stories who have done wild, weird, and wonderful things. Remember that imagination shared create collaboration, and collaboration creates community, and community inspires social change. I'm David Peck, and this is Face to Face. So I'm very excited about my next interview. John Aitchison. He's a a wildlife photographer and a filmmaker, and as I've said uh, in in the interview, a poet, he's written a book called The Shark and the Albatross. I think he's a philosopher, too, uh, whether he wants to admit to it or not. Uh, Subtitled, Travels with a Camera to the Ends of the Earth he has worked uh, with the bbc national geographic pbs discovery channel the frozen planet the life stories uh, the list is quite endless really this uh, you know john john has traveled the world he's got a lot of insight he's got a an ability to to notice he talks about that he talks about this idea that we're not really very good at noticing or listening and we're not taught how to do that and and there are these what he refers to as these subtle signs in and all around us in our environment and and the closer that we look the more details that we're going to see he refers to that as as privileged access which is really beautiful he talks about this notion of there's no substitute for spending time and uh, the book is full of stories john is clearly full of stories and memories and and ways of connecting with with others in the world around us you're going to love the book I hope you're going to love this interview. Stay tuned. John Aitchison online as well. But the book is called The Shark and the Albatross. And uh, lean in a little closer and and listen carefully to to this next interview. John Aitchison. Well, welcome to Face to Face. We are joined by a very special guest today. Uh, John Aitchison is with us. Uh, he is a photographer. He's a writer. I, I'm going to call him a poet as well, um, but uh, we'll we'll let him talk to that in a second. Uh, John, thanks so much for joining us today.
2: Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. And
1: so, where where are you currently? You're about six hours ahead of us, I think. You're sitting where?
2: Yes. I'm at home in Scotland, on the west coast of Scotland.
1: West coast of Scotland. And what uh, what's the sun doing there right now?
2: Uh, we haven't seen the sun for quite a long time. <laughs> it's been quite wet this year. Quite wet July we have.
1: It sounds like the opening of someone's autobiography from Scotland. We haven't seen the sun in quite a long time,
2: <laughs> period. I saw a sign the other day that said, Today's rain is tomorrow's whiskey, which I thought was probably quite good for Scotland.
1: I would think that's bang on, Yes. So you've written a book, The Shark and the Albatross, uh, subtitled A Wildlife Filmmaker Reveals Why Nature Matters to Us All. And I think my listeners, our listeners need to know that you've been working with the BBC for many years. Uh, My understanding is I think you have your own production company. You've been filming and photographing. You have an incredible passion and sense of purpose around wildlife photography um won many awards too which and and uh, remarkable really uh, your your cv and and may i say congratulations on the book i'm i'm absolutely loving it
2: oh well i'm delighted to hear that thank you very much it, it was a sort of distillate of quite a long time spent filming as you, as you say i i've been mainly working for the bbc although I don't, i'm not employed directly by them so i've worked for other people as well over the years um, I guess it's twenty-five years now of, uh, of filming um, wildlife programs okay. all over the place.
1: I um, so I need to tell you, and maybe we'll come back to this. But uh, I, I uh, and I had mentioned it in an earlier text to you. But I had a, a dentist appointment this morning, and I sit down yes. in the chair, and they often play movies. While you're watching, I guess, to distract you from all the unnecessary pain that they're causing you. Um, (laughs) And no kidding, up comes a BBC, uh, not Frozen Planet, but um, Under the Seas, narrated by David Attenborough. I couldn't believe it. And I just thought, you know, I had too many tools in my mouth to tell the the dentist that I'd be interviewing you later today. But uh, I just thought it was pretty interesting timing.
2: Yes, it's quite funny, isn't it? I guess um, it's very difficult to have conversations with dentists, isn't it? They, they ask you questions and then you can't answer them. It's a very odd
1: thing. It's very <laughs> odd. I'm going to read. I'm going to read a quote from the introduction to your book. Uh, "Quote: What I like most about Aitchison's approach is that implicitly he views the living world." as sacred close quote you know I called you a poet in my uh, biography of you uh, I don't know that that appears on your website but but can can you talk a little bit about that that sense of the sacred in the work that you do
2: and uh, the discoveries yes, that you've I, made I was pleased with, with Carl's introduction actually because I I hadn't thought in those terms but I think he's absolutely right I think there is a sense that when I when I'm in the natural world and it's really natural, which isn't the case much of the time, but, but you do go to places and you do have, even quite close to home sometimes, those moments when everything just falls into place and you perhaps you hear a bird singing or you see something unexpected. And there is a, there's a, a sense of the very special that comes mm. through in those moments, which, which I think is actually a kind of secular, sacred feeling, in mm. fact. And as I get older, more and more, I feel anger that the natural world is being damaged. And I think that anger, that, that hurt comes from that sense that this is something that shouldn't be damaged, that we, we don't have a right to damage. And that that, that is a sense of, of sacredness, of untouchableness about nature, which um when we when we lose that and just despoil it without thinking, um, I, I think is deeply wrong and it, it hurts. So yes, I think he was he hit the nail on the head when he said that. It does you know, read you know, true.
1: John, I, I couldn't help but think as I was reading through your book and, and and looking, thinking towards our interview, there's a sense in which, you know, the environment and environmentalists and the and the movement itself, at least in the West, has, has really kind of taken off a cottage industry, a subculture, if you will. And yet, so there's this sense that we are environmentally hmm, friendly or aware. And yet, as I read your book, I just thought, wow. We really actually aren 't even close like we've we 've got a long way to go that 's sort of what I took from it, and I think that 's my i mean maybe maybe my connect with the sacredness of it all, but the the poetry of it the 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 mystery the beauty you know of of what does surround us
2: I think that grows as, as you spend more time um the more time you spend looking, the less you you realize that you know and the nature's unlike other. Other areas of interest in that way, I think and we're very lucky if we're interested in nature because it seems to be endlessly fascinating. The, the more you, um, the more you learn, the more you realise there is to learn. It just goes on and on and on, expanding in front of you. Um, and in you know, many areas of, of human endeavour, that's not how it works. You you come towards a limit of what you can find out it's in many areas, but nature not like that. Um, so, in terms of um where it's going. I think you're right that there is an increased awareness and especially in younger people I think, um, because of schools partly actually are particularly good in primary school especially. My children had a lot of environmental education. It drops off a bit in secondary school, but it's it's there in their in their background now. Um but we don't take that up very well. When when we get older, I think we all get busy and society mm-hmm. doesn't really reward environmental thinking very well. It just Right, Sets set it aside is a thing that you, you kind of know about, but you can safely ignore it. And there's no approbation if you if you um, if you behave irresponsibly towards the environment. So uh, we need to change that. I think it's it's getting late to do much uh, to do. You know, we do rather little, and it's the clock's ticking. We need to we need to be doing more than we do. Well, I guess there's, more
1: than we do. I guess there's a sense in which why bother if it doesn't seem to affect me in the here and now, yeah. right? There's a sense that's exactly of exactly right, yeah.
2: I and, can get away without doing it because nobody else is doing it, so no one's going to notice if I don't do it. Yeah, but of I, course, if you do that, that's the same as not voting or other things, isn't it? You know, oh, what's one person's vote gonna count? It's not well, gonna make any
1: difference. The dam, the dam may break, but you know what? Probably not in my lifetime. So you know. <laughs> mm.
2: But actually now we're we're getting towards the point where it's really only a few decades away. Right. These are the critical two decades now for the climate, for instance, and for biodiversity as well, for, for habitat protection. We're into that phase now where really crucial things are changing and they're changing quite fast. And because I travel so much and I go to filming is generally, wildlife filming is generally done in the very best places available anywhere on the planet now. So... If if I'm asked to film lions, which I have been doing during the last year, uh, it's in the Masaimara Mara Reserve in Kenya, which is a really special place, um, perhaps the best place in Kenya to film lions. And then when when I was there, three of them were, were poisoned and died. Wow! So you you I find this, you know, I go to these places, and in each place, people are saying it's not as good as it used to be, you know, right, or right. The climate's changed and things are really getting screwed up here. The, the bears are dying because there's no no ice or it's really drastically changing, very rapidly changing at the moment.
1: Do you, you know, I find it really interesting and paradoxical that you've uh, and tell me about this and work with me on this. But you've spent your life looking through a very narrow piece of technology, a lens, yes. and yet yes. I couldn't I couldn't get more of a wider perspective from your book. And and and
2: that's and good, you're good if you just say that. I mean, I think that's what I was trying to do, really, because the the narrow technology is. Is a type of way of looking at the world through a television camera's lens, but it's narrow also because television programs are filtered. They're they're commissioned and then produced and edited to a purpose, and the purpose is generally a commercial one. And generally, they don't work in the commercial sense if they don't interest a lot of people. They have mm. to they have to appeal to millions of people, and they have to sell. And if they don't do that, then you won't get commissioned to make another one. Right. So. They um, run the risk, and they don't always fall into this um, category, but they do run the risk of, of set dressing the natural world so it looks lovely and that there's everything's fine. You might go, for instance, to that lion example. I might go somewhere where it does look fantastic um, and you can film what looks like a sort of timeless Eden full of elephants and lions and giraffes. Um, but it doesn't have any sense at all that that's rather a small area and all around it is habitation and fields and no lions, elephants or giraffes. So by omission those programs can actually tell a lie, really. Right. But, but, of course, it doesn't work to make a very negative program saying, look at what else there is around this where there's no wildlife at all. Because, in fact, we don't really watch wildlife programs for that purpose. Most of us watch wildlife programs as a kind of escape. As right. A, as a, an hour when we're not thinking about the news or habitat destruction or you know any negative things at all. We just want to look at something beautiful for a bit.
1: Do, do you... Are you a poet who happens to be a photographer?
2: <laughs> I don't know if I'm a poet, really. I, I've, I've written a, a few poems in my time, but hardly <laughs> ever. Um, but I like that, that type of writing. I, I think the, the people who... It, films and writing are the same, in a sense, in that if you want to engage people, you can do it with facts, but you can do it far more effectively with emotion mm. and with... Beauty, because beauty inspires emotion in us, I think, and if you can relate to feelings people have had in the past or might have in the future, or subjects which move people—family or sacrifice or um, kindness or or generosity or um, risk—those kind of things, everybody knows about those things. We've all had experience of of danger, of loss, um, and those apply to the natural world just as much as they apply to human life. Um, if you can write in a way that brings those things to life, then, or film in a way that brings those things yeah, to life, of then course. the programs are far more effective and books are far more effective too. But there are, there are great examples. I'm, I'm, I'm not original in this at all, in, in that I, I read a great deal of natural history writing, and I really appreciate writers who do that, like Barry Lopez, for instance. It's a genius at those those that style of writing, of nature writing. It transports you and it engages you emotionally, and that's really what I was trying to do, I
1: suppose. Yeah, well, and I think you I think you did do it very well. But but I I guess too, I think what I was sort of getting to in a way with the question was just this ability. I think it does doesn't a great poet, doesn't a great writer, doesn't a great filmmaker really have this ability to observe and and to listen and i just saw you you know i mean your sense of patience you talk about that in the book actually a great deal or at least it certainly comes through and you know i see you sitting on a block of ice camping on a block of ice for 10 days and and, and imagine the the madness of that on one level
2: mm-hmm. and yet yes. the
1: the the, <laughs> the 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 sheer sense of uh, of of focus and intention on, on another
2: yes I mean, there, there is a, a sort of waiting of course and in fact thinking of um the experience the, the examined life if you like is yes. more interesting
1: yes you know than yes. just sitting
2: there waiting for something to happen so you know i do it partly um because it's a, a nice way to pass the time also I'm, you know i'm so lucky to go to these places that to sit there and and grumble about the cold and and wish wish the animals would hurry up and turn up would just be a, a travesty having having had the luck and the um the, the, well the good fortune to be invited to go and be there um it would be a waste not to relish the moment but um of course the moment's can to be quite long but the I think waiting I find waiting quite easy because it's it's never waiting in a, vo- a void there's there's always something going on it, it may not be the thing you're trying to no. film mm. um but there's always something else going on so oh, right. in, in in a sense those are the things that often, I'm not supposed to film, and and so I watch them instead. Um, and then the words come rather easily to describe those things, as long as there's a moment to, to, to take it in and, and maybe jot a note or two, or even record sound, because often if you just make a, an audio recording of a place or perhaps even people chatting, when it when the time comes to relive that and write about it, it comes flooding back, and it's very evocative sound. So I, I take a little sound recorder with me and, Sometimes record notes into it, and sometimes just record the sound of the place.
1: I love how you say it. I love how you say at one point. Uh, and by the way, I think we've already mentioned it, but the book, "The Shark and the Albatross," uh, you 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 say there's no substitute for spending time. And yeah, and yeah, and absolutely. I love that. I mean, that sense of commitment and, and 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 research. And there's a history to that. There's also a sense of future to that that I just love. That that that. There's gotta be this passionate, committed intent that goes along, I don't know, with pretty much yeah. everything we do, it seems to me.
2: I think so too. I, I don't I don't think you can do you can you can't hope to do anything well if you do it in a trivial way. If you don't think of it as something that's worth putting time into, you'll never be very good at it. And and so I think it's really important and I, I say this to people who ask me for advice and, and I say it to my kids, you know, it's really important that you should do something that you like and that you're interested in, because if you if you have to put in all these thousands of hours to something that really doesn't interest you, I don't see how you could ever be any good at doing that thing, mm-hmm. because it's, it's so difficult to uh, focus for a long time on something that you don't believe is important. Right. Um, I mean, we all, we all really... I mean, maybe it's hobbies that, that many people occupy themselves with and put that effort into but I think everybody's got something some passion it may not be their work at all but what a dull thing it would be to live for many decades and not be interested in anything
1: I love I love the, I'm pretty sure it's uh, in, in the, near the end of the book where you talk about your son and his interest, uh, I believe, in photography as well. Mm. And I think, I think this might be where it, the, this whole notion of, and maybe I'm going to say you're also, you know, I'm, I'm getting inklings of philosophy here. You know, the examined life <laughs> out on a block of ice. I'm, 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 I'm liking that image right now. Um, but you, 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 you talk about, you talk about the phrase was look properly. And you and you no. you said to your son, you know, whether whether you come home with pictures or not, this this is about, this is about paying attention to the details. This is about listening. This is about observing the world in a, hmm, I don't know, healthy way, uh, holistic mm. way. I, I, I don't know. I
2: think it's to do with yes, yeah, to do with noticing really, and no, knowing to notice is something that you, you need to either come upon for yourself mm. or be shown how to do it because right. it doesn't necessarily um, we're not taught this anymore. It would have been absolutely standard in all humans' um, education, say I don't know, 50 generations ago because you would die otherwise if you didn't know the significance of very subtle signs in your environment about what was going to happen Right. Um, you definitely wouldn't survive and We've lost that, really. I mean, maybe we pay attention to the same degree to other things in our modern environment, and they keep us alive too, perhaps. But I think that fine um, attention—that sort of—it well, was. There's a British writer called Roger Deakin who who called it fierce looking, mm. and I think he was absolutely right. It it is a kind of there's a kind of focus which is quite fierce sometimes, where you really are paying attention. Um, and it can be to anything, it doesn't have to be natural history, but I think we learned it through, through our interaction with other animals, particularly in the past, and that was what kept us alive. If we oh. were hunter-gatherers, and there were dangerous animals there, and also animals you needed to catch, then if you weren't good at fierce-looking, you didn't find them.
1: Right. It's, I, it's in our I, genes. I, I I want to talk about your the elusive links because for me that was a really interesting. I mean, all 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 the chapters are very interesting. I love the way you frame it around a trip, around an animal, and so on. And I also want to talk a little bit about what's this book really about. <laughs> you know is it yes. re- is it really <laughs> about <laughs> is it really about animals i you know and and i love that about it but but and and i think i mentioned to you as well offline my my daughter victoria is going to absolutely love this she's got a sense for uh others and a sense for that whole world in a way that i haven't noticed before and i'm uh, we're doing uh, yes. what we we're, we're doing what we can already she's eight to 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 water that Brilliant. and to nurture that in a in a in a oh, good, good way yeah so tell me So I guess my question is, do I need to get binoculars for Victoria? Because you you
2: talked about... Wow, that's a good question. Yeah, you talked about... I think soon, yes. Easy (laughs) to use ones. Yeah, soon. Okay. okay. Because that was a revelation to me when I was a little bit older than her. Yes. That moment of first seeing the details is all about detail, I think. When you realize that there's more and more and more detail, the closer you look, the more detail there is, the more fascinating the things become, the more... Detailed the behaviour is, the more beautiful the animals are when you see them close. And it may be that you can get close. You, there are lots of things you can get close to without binoculars. But if it's birds, you can't generally. So, yes, I think binoculars made a big difference to my life, certainly. And that that um, sort of privileged access that you get through through seeing things eight times closer or, or in hides. You know, if you go to a bird reserve and you can get into a hide and you suddenly see these things that don't know you're there behaving naturally, it opens opens a whole new world up, I think. And I was talking actually, I worked with David Attenborough on on a program about amber some time ago. Okay. And we were talking about um, about our subject, about this natural history subject, making films. And he said we're very lucky with our subject, you know, because we could be just as interested in. I know, medieval pottery. And um, <laughs> it would matter to us just as much, yes. but nobody would be, be asking us to make films about it. <laughs> that's right. And he, you know, he's asked quite often, people say to him, um, when did you first become interested in, in wildlife? When did you become interested mm. in wildlife? And he says, when did you stop being interested in yeah, wildlife? Yeah, that's great. Because,
1: that's such a great it, right? line. It's so he's, good. He's
2: always on the nail, David. But that the point is, of course, all children are interested in wildlife. It just... Some more than others, maybe, but it just dwindles because they're not encouraged um, so much in our society anymore. Because most adults don't know that much about wildlife, so access is limited. We don't live in the countryside so much anymore. More than half of the world population uh, lives in cities now. Literally, more than fifty percent are urban. So access to any wildlife at all is is much more limited than it used to be. It used to be just there you'd go out and find things you'd make toys from fir cones and my mother showed me loads of ways to make toys from bits of tree and plants and things which she did when she was a child um we're losing those things, but we encourage Victoria. Definitely. If she's, oh, we, she's we interested. It's we, great.
1: We absolutely will. And and I think your book has affirmed that in, in a variety of ways. And I'm looking forward to getting, uh, watching, seeing more of your work as well. Uh, and I probably watched much of it in the past. That would be my guess. Um, John, John, tell, why you as a child and and not another child and I'm always interested in motivation. I'm always interested in, you know, the nature-nurture debate. Was it the household you grew up in? Was it the books that you read? Was it some sort of epiphanic encounter that you had as a child alongside of the binoculars? You know, obviously it's not a one-time thing, but it was clearly uh, touched a nerve with you in a way that, that it doesn't with others. And, and, then you, and then you continued to water it. It's fascinating to me.
2: I think that's, that continuing to water it thing is really important to this because there are these little germs of interest, aren't there? We all have these sparks, these, these moments, which maybe are inherent or encouraged or both, and they happen when you're young. But if if you're not almost shown that they can be significant by somebody else, then you may or may not have the character or the inkling or the... Or the uh, I don't know, the drive to take that thing on and some people's characters just do that I think and they'll, they're quite bloody minded and they'll just pursue something that interests them but I think the majority of people are not like that and and if you're lucky as I think I was then you can be um, encouraged in a, in, a very, um, in a very clever way by adults who don't tell you everything about the thing you're interested in they just encourage you to become more and more interested in it so I think I was lucky because my, my mother likes plants especially, but she's very interested in natural history. And my dad's an engineer and he likes cameras. So there are two things which, when I was quite young, I was just exposed to photography and to natural history. we would go on walks in the countryside, and my dad would often had a camera with him, which he could then then me mm. later on and so on. Mm. Um, and lucky, lucky again, because I had a, a friend at school whose father took natural history stills. He took photographs of animals and so Andrew and I would go off with his dad when he was going photographing birds we weren't particularly paying attention to what he was doing but it was we were going to these interesting places and he was um, I remember going to a reed bed once in a marsh and we went to help him camouflage the hide so he was going to go into a hide and take pictures which I never did but we went there through this reed bed in our wellies in the mud and all these birds around us and creep creeping through this place that you weren't supposed to go to normally Mm. um, and then getting a view of the the lagoon that was beyond it with birds on it and thinking wow this is amazing this is a really different world that I never knew existed and I think especially important there was an adult who thought it was important whereas I might have if I had been interested in that if I'd come across that on my own which I don't think I would have done I would have perhaps thought well nobody's going to think that this is significant they're going to think this is you know, a foolish thing that children do rather than a, a, an interesting thing that adults might find interesting. Well, this um, kind
1: of, John, it kind of goes back to your comment about sort of being taught how to see, right? Or being taught yeah. how to notice. That, yes. Yeah. That that kids do have that ability. And it's, yeah, isn't it amazing yes. that, I don't know, we as adults, we as a culture, we as, a, we as a, a human race seem to squeeze that out of children at a certain age, you know, all of us included. Yeah. Yeah,
2: observation. Uh, It it isn't. I mean, you play loads of games as a as a child, don't you? Which to do with looking. uh, Yes. In the car when you're on journeys. That's right. That's right. Lots, lots of observational type things. Yes. What colour is this? And all sorts of stuff. And then, um, then you you stop doing that, and you start having to remember received information. It becomes all about being given information and having to cram it into your head, and that's not how it works when you're looking at the world at all. You go into the world and you notice stuff and you wonder That's what it right. is That's and right. maybe you follow it and you perhaps then go and learn about it but it's not that doesn't come first, what comes first is noticing um, and we, we forget I think how important noticing things um, is, I used, to, I used to notice stuff all the time, I used to find money on the floor because <laughs> the milkman would drop change or whatever or I'd see birds in trees and, and point them out to people and they'd say oh I didn't see that you know, and I started realising that I was noticing stuff and then it, of course you encouraged to do it more just yes. because it surprises people or you, you sure know, it's quite handy finding sure. money
1: on the floor sure yeah <laughs> there's a career i think there's a career hey if this whole photography thing doesn't work out for you there might be a career in that
2: uh, <laughs> i <in> noticing
1: <laughs> well, well and, fi- and finding and finding money on the floor finding uh, money on the floor <laughs> <laughs> yes it doesn't work anymore it's all credit cards now. that's right hey we're gonna have to wrap it up soon i'm i'm i'm, 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 I'm sad about that and I, I hope we can do part Two together, but I want to talk oh, a little, you. a little bit more about, about just really quickly about what, what this book really is about and, 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 and the title and the image even of the perspective shift of the albatross of the shark. You talk about it in that chapter. It's fascinating mm-hmm. to me. I, I don't think you're a photographer at all. I, I really, I, <laughs> I, I honestly, man, there's, this is a, this is a philosophical treatise. It, it's wonderful oh. on so many levels. So is and obviously it's about animals and it's about your experience and, and humanizing them and so on. But but, boy, I don't know. There's a lot of dots that are, are that are connecting for me.
2: <laughs> I'm really glad to hear you say that. I mean, I'd like to know what you think it's about too. But the, the, um, the shark and the albatross, the reason it's called that is because when I was filming tiger sharks trying to catch young albatrosses yes. in an island in the Hawaiian chain, the young albatrosses, have to leave their island and fly away across the sea which they've never done before and they can't fly particularly well when they start they can sit on the water but sitting on the water near the island is very dangerous because the tiger sharks know that the young albatrosses leave at certain right. times of the year and in july and so they come and try and intercept them and eat them and so um it's extremely dangerous but the albatrosses don't know that <laughs> right. so The, host family and the young albatrosses, knowing that I'm feeling bad about it. And the albatrosses were beautiful and young and lovely animals. Um, the sharks were three meters, four meters long and quite frightening. I thought, but there were divers filming the sharks while I was filming the albatrosses. Sure. And we took sides. The divers wanted the sharks to eat. I wanted the albatrosses to escape. And I thought this is going to happen to the audience too. They're going to have nice. to take sides because this thing will be edited sure. one way or the other. And then I thought, well, actually, given that sharks are dwindling very quickly because People kill them for their fins. Um, Their numbers are crashing. And that we were finding albatrosses on the islands. Young albatrosses dead through having ingested plastic, which their parents thought was food. Mm. Um, Here we are, humans, doing this to the natural world, to both sharks and albatrosses. And whose side are we on, actually? We shouldn't be thinking, I like predators or I like prey. We should be thinking, I like nature. We should be on nature's side. So that's why I called the book The Shark and the Albatross. um, Because for me, it summed up that... Uh, sleepwalking almost that we're doing through the natural world not realizing how much it's changing because of people and that we could be doing something about it um, and largely we we just don't but we we could and should be doing something about it so the, the book's full of stories about filming and about animals and about wild places but underlying it often at least is a thread of um come on guys let's, Let's think about what we're doing and do a bit
1: more right.
2: in favor of nature. Are we on nature's side or, or are we not? And let's decide consciously. And then if we're on nature's side, let's do something about it.
1: Well, it, it, for me, it, it, it really is a lesson in living the examined life. And, you know, I th- honestly, uh, and and there's a philosophical edge to this, and an existential edge, frankly. Uh, in some ways, it raises more questions for me in in, in, in uh, on some levels, and yet is just this marvelous, uh, um, hmm, uh, what's uh, uh, I was going to use the word honor, honorarium? That's the wrong word, but it's this, <laughs> this, this uh, celebration of, of the mystery and the wonder and the beauty that that, that we we miss. You know, it's, it's kind of, it's Mm. kind of interesting, you know, I don't want to be crass about it, but you know, you're no longer seeing the, the the change on the floor. Well, maybe that's a good thing, you know, the money, because you can, you can look up and around.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I look up as much as I look down these days. That's right. Yeah, I think you're right. I think the philosophy behind it is, um, from my point of view anyway, is that the the closer you look, the more you, the more you see and the more you realize that beyond what you can see is another level of things mm. that you can see if you keep looking.
0: Yeah, and it,
2: nice. it starts to fall into place as patterns and those patterns are, I find, the most fascinating thing. If you start seeing reasons for things, complex reasons, complex um, systems which, which sure. you're seeing parts of, of your, then you start to see the world in a different way. The world, the world is made up of um, many interacting systems and we can't just pull one of them out without expecting right. it to have consequences elsewhere um it, it it's endlessly fascinating i would um encourage really anyone to go and and become interested in nature as a as a as a hobby but as a thing that's good for you as well it's mm. something which lifts all of our spirits.
1: Well, um, if, and, if you have and, that there. and and I think your book does the same, and I, I hope it becomes an introduction to many, many people to taking it on as a hobby, as something else to think about, uh, read more, dig deeper. You know, I think uh, that it's it certainly opened up a new world for me. It's the shark and the albatross travels with a camera to the ends of the earth. Wildlife filmmaker John Aitchison has been our guest today. He he uh, works for the independent production company Otter Films. He's worked with BBC and National Geographic and PBS and Discovery. The list goes on. John, thanks so much for your uh, time and your generosity
2: today. I, I
1: really appreciate it. It's a pleasure,
2: David. It's been lovely talking to you. I hope we we'll get
1: to to again. I hope so, too. Part two is coming up soon, I hope.